This is CliffCentral.com. Welcome to the Renegade Report. I'm Jonathan. And Ramon is present. And I do apologize. I am sick as two dogs. Uh, that's the effect of sending your only child to school for the first time ever. Oh, so That was a bad idea. How would you want it to be educated? Or indoctrinated. It depends which way you look at it. But hopefully I will survive the course of this podcast. And mm. we're going to just jump straight into it. Our guest this week is Hilal Noya. He is the executive director of UN Watch, which is a human rights NGO based in Geneva, which was created in 1993. So, Mr. Noya, welcome to the Renegade Report. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Um, so, the UN is always, well, to me, it seems that people seem to trust it. Uh, what is there to watch in the UN? Well, the United Nations was founded with the right principles in 1945 in the aftermath of World War II to ensure international peace and security, and to promote and protect fundamental freedoms for all. The principles are correct. The problem is that over time, the body has become, in many cases, hijacked by dictatorships and does not uphold its principles in many agencies, such as human rights. And so uh, our founder thought that it was important to have an outside agency that would watch the UN. Because I believe that your founder said that you know the UN actually is a critical part of international relations does actually do good things. The United Nations is not going away. It, it, it is an indispensable part of the international governmental structure that we have. And uh, yes, if it didn't exist, we, we would recreate it. In Geneva, my office is across the street from the UN Refugee Agency, and we're next to the World Health Organization and the International Labor Organization. And those bodies, don't get me wrong, are deeply flawed. And there's a lack of accountability across the United Nations. But they can play an important role. And the question is whether we hold them to account. Like any other organization, like any other governmental body, if they're not closely monitored, if there's no accountability, you're going to have a lot of corruption. And the UN, even more so than other places, because it's so removed from the average citizen. You're, you're in a, really um, these uh, uh, chambers in New York or in Geneva where the world has little access and where the press, the, the UN press corps doesn't re- is not really a probing press corps that is seeking to hold the UN to account. They're usually just uh, putting out the press releases of the UN and not, not being very critical. But I think that's an essential element of, of any governing authority. I mean, if you looked at the US, historically, the Constitution created the smallest states, one of the smallest states the world's ever known, and now it's grown to the biggest one. Um, same here. I mean, the, the centralized power inevitably corrupts itself over time. Yes, well, cer- certainly you need checks and balances. You mentioned the United States. The United States, one of the uh, one of the brilliant innovations of of the founders, was this notion of checks and balances that they were idealistic, <clears throat> and at the same time, they were <clears throat> um, quite realistic about human nature. And so it's built into the system. And we see with Trump, some of the ridiculous things that he does are immediately challenged in courts and by and by other levels of government. And that's that's uh, and that's having the system work. The United Nations does not have that. There there is no uh, judiciary. There's something called the International Court, but that has no no power over UN bodies. When if the General Assembly makes a decision, that's it. The Human Rights Council makes a decision. It's validated in the General Assembly. There there is no higher authority in terms of appealing to what is right, what is just, and uh, and that's something that's lacking. And hence, you do need outside bodies to hold the UN to account. And 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 some a number of UN officials acknowledge the importance of that, and we do have various UN officials who work with us and appreciate the work we do, and others, of course, don't like being held accountable and resent it. Originally, you know, you, you mentioned how important it is as, as an, or an important role it can play as an organization. Uh, it was started by a group of countries, certainly that were Western liberal countries based on those types of values, and you mentioned that it's essentially at, at, at points been hijacked by, by dictatorships. Um, is the main problem with the UN currently that everyone's vote counts one? And so the number of liberal democracies really is outnumbered by the number of dictatorships or illiberal states that get to have just as equal a say. 
Yes, that, that's a big part of the problem, but it's not the only part of the problem. If we look at the Human Rights Council, where, where we're based in Geneva and where I do most of my work, uh, if we look at what's wrong with the Human Rights Council, which is going to meet on Monday for its main annual session of 2018, foreign ministers from around the world, including possibly your own or at least a senior minister, will, will likely be in Geneva for this meeting. And they're meant to address the most compelling situations around the world. And yet, in many cases, the opposite is true. Most of the world's urgent situations will not be ignored. There will not be a single resolution on 1.3 billion people in China denied any form of freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, freedom of thought. There will not be one resolution on Turkey, who fired a year and a half ago more than 100,000 teachers, deans, professors, uh, academics, government officials, throwing journalists in prison. Um, uh, there will be not a single resolution on uh, the rights of women in Saudi Arabia. There will not be uh, a resolution uh, on human rights in Qatar uh, or in Cuba or in Venezuela where uh, babies are coming to the hospital starving because of the failed policies of the, the Chavez ideology and the Maduro regime and country also where they've thrown um, dissidents in jail and the opposition is basically all you know locked up in one form or other. So most of the world's worst situations will be ignored. There'll be a handful of resolutions on Syria or, or other situations. Israel will get half the resolutions. That's a, a, a regular feature of the Human Rights Council. But the, 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 the part of the problem is the dictatorships who sit on it. You know, why is the council failing to act? And, there, and there's two parts to it. One part is, is the membership. About half the membership are, as you say, either illiberal or non-democracies. We're talking about Saudi Arabia, a member. Cuba, a member. Venezuela, a member. Qatar just re-elected as a member. New member, Pakistan, just elected. Even as Asya Bibi, Christian mother of five, remains on death row for quote-unquote blasphemy because she took water from the well and her villagers wanted to get her. Uh, uh, you know, these that's a nutshell of, of who the members are. And that's half the problem. The other half of the problem has nothing to do with the dictatorship. It has to do with, I say, our liberal democracies. I'm Canadian. I live in Switzerland. Our liberal democracies. We wrote, we wrote a resolution on Venezuela. We've been bringing victims, the leading dissidents. We just had this week Mayor Antonio Ledesma, the uh, democratically elected mayor of Caracas, who was thrown into prison, violently elected under house arrest. He just escaped a few months ago. Uh, he's now the leading Venezuelan uh, opposition leader who's out of the country and who's meeting with presidents. He'll be in uh, Peru soon for the next uh, summit of uh, South American leaders. Um, we, we wrote a resolution on Venezuela. We handed it to the countries. I went to Madrid. I gave it to the foreign ministry. I said, here's a resolution, four pages, citing UN experts on all the terrible things that the government is doing, arbitrary detention, torture, arrests. And I couldn't get one government. We couldn't get one government to, to introduce this resolution. Now, this is not Saudi Arabia's fault. This is Canada's fault. This is Britain's fault. This is Germany's fault. This is Spain's fault. This is... Latin America's fault, Argentina, Brazil. Why can't you introduce a resolution on Venezuela? Yes, Venezuela should be expelled from the Human Rights Council. I didn't ask for that. At least, you know, make a statement on Venezuela. Not even that. So there is a failure across the board by democracies to use the mechanisms we have. There's a lot of talk we need to reform the council. You know what? Forget about reform. How about use the mechanisms you have, which allows any country, even you know, there's 47 member states. The rest are observers. Observer states can introduce a resolution, but in most cases they don't. And it's for a combination of political reasons, economic reasons, a failure of nerve. Um, and in many cases, these countries are, are a feeble lot, to quote one of Britain's great leaders in modern times. Indeed. Hey, Nigel Farage. <laughs> Ramon. Oh, that's the EU. Sorry, that's the EU. But I, mean, you know, I don't understand. I mean, what leverage does Venezuela and Cuba actually have? In, 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 first of all, in the world, because they're not, they're not powerful nations by any means. I do suspect perhaps many bureaucrats who are in the UN or, or who are sent to the UN by their own countries might have some sort of sympathy. Ideological with, with the, sympathy. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Ideological sympathy. But if you ban Cuba from the UN, it's, it's like no loss to anyone, surely. Except for Cuba. No, I think it's a good point. I mean, it, it's one thing to take on Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, which yeah. are extremely powerful countries in one form or other, whether through oil or, or, or other reasons. And you ask about Cuba, it's a tiny country, basically it doesn't have anything. Um, but at the UN, things are a bit more complicated. And I would say, I mentioned two factors. One is a country like Cuba has always used the UN as a strategic uh, battleground. The UN sends their, uh, the Cubans send their best diplomats to the UN. They know every rule and procedure. They, uh, 
uh, seize the role for themselves, the leadership role, as head of the non-aligned movement. As you know, it's 130 countries. It's the largest bloc at the UN, which was basically, initially it was supposed to be not aligned with the US, not aligned with the Soviets. But over time, it, it became, you know, basically uh, very close with the Soviets and became anti-Western. It was an anti-colonial bloc, but was was manipulated by the Soviets to be anti-Western. And the Cubans seized a leadership role there, in part because since they had no relations with the Americans, they felt there was there was no loss for them to just go at it with no holds barred, whether most other countries in Africa or Asia, even if they didn't like the U.S., they needed them for something or other. So the Cubans would, would seize that, that, that forum and really go after the U.S., and they would, they would show that they're more non-aligned than anybody else. So the Cubans have often been leaders there. They, at the Human Rights Council, they introduce more resolutions than any other country. They introduce um, a, a, uh, a panoply of anti-Western resolutions, which, for example, I'll mention just one. There's a resolution on something called unilateral coercive measures. Now, just this week in Geneva, we hosted Bill Browder, the author of Red Notice, um, who's, he's a, a, a businessman, um, an investor based in London who was in Russia and he, um, had a face off with Putin's, uh, oligarchs and, uh, basically the Putin mafia stole millions of dollars from his company and he is, Bill Browder's lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky was exposing the, the system of, of corruption around um, uh, Putin, you know, Gary Kasparov has called Putin basically the head of the largest mafia organization. You all have to pay, you know, your dues to Putin yeah. with the oligarchs, otherwise you get thrown in prison. Yeah. And it's basically a huge mafia organization. And Sergei Magnitsky, Bill Browder's lawyer, began to expose that. And they arrested him, they uh, put him in prison on false charges, and he was sick and they let him die in prison. And then Bill Browder said, I'm going to devote the rest of my life to going after the bastards who put my, who made my lawyer, who killed my lawyer, basically, uh, the innocent and Sergei Magnitsky. And so he's gone around the world and he's successfully uh, managed to get the U.S. to adopt what's called the Sergei Magnitsky Act, um, which imposes sanctions on those who were involved in the death of Sergei Magnitsky, uh, leading Russian officials. When were these sanctions imposed? Um, the, the law itself was adopted in 2012 and then you need the government to impose them. There have been a series of, of sanctions that were imposed. Um, and uh, he got Canada to to actually create a global Magnitsky Act, so not just on Russia. And they already implemented them, uh, did sanctions against Russians and Venezuelans and I think some Iranians. And so these are measures that Bill Browder, who just spoke for us in Geneva this week, um, and and also the greatest dissident in Russia today, Vladimir Karamurza, who was poisoned twice in Moscow because he speaks out against Putin, extremely articulate, impressive guy. I wish I had his English. I wish I had his French, which he gave an interview in French in Switzerland. Amazing. So really impressive guy. He won our Moral Courage Award this week at, at the Geneva Summit. Um, Vladimir Karamurza and Bill Browder go around the world and they say, we want these Magnitsky Acts to hold Putin and his murderous mafia cronies to account. At the United Nations, Cuba has a resolution that says these sanctions are themselves human rights abuses. They are what they call unilateral coercive measures that violate international law. And therefore, Vladimir Putin is a victim of a human rights violation. And Omar Bashir of Sudan is a victim of human rights violations when the EU has sanctions against him. This is enacted. It's the law at the Human Rights Council. They created an expert to implement, to be the champion of that. It's the special rapporteur, the independent expert on unilateral coercive measures. They found the ex-Algerian ambassador, who's um, uh, quite a character. He, when he was an Algerian ambassador for about eight years in Geneva, from around 04 to 2012, he was the leading enemy of the human rights experts. He tried to enact a code of conduct, quote unquote, to muzzle the independent human rights experts so they couldn't criticize countries. And then a couple of years ago, he's now in retirement, they appointed him a human rights expert on the unilateral course of measures. He took the job, right? I'm not making this stuff up, right? This happened about a year ago. His name is Idris Jazeri, J-A-Z-A-I-R-Y. You can look him up on our website, unwatch.org. Idris Jazeri, he... he inherited this new post, the first thing he did was he flew to Sudan and he said, Omar Bashir is a victim of human rights abuses by the West. He's a victim. Then the next year he flew to Russia and he said, Vladimir Putin's a victim of Russia, of of of, of human rights abuses. I, when he get, delivered his report, I appeared in front of him and I said, Mr. Jazeri, um, 
could you tell us uh, uh, anything about the fifty thousand dollars that uh, we found that your office received from Russia just uh, you know six months ago? Uh, what happened with that money? And is that curious that you received that money and then you flew to Russia and said that Putin's a victim of human rights abuse? And he lashed out at me, and he, still to this day we don't know what happened with that money, which is listed on a UN document that his office received from the Russians. So. Coming back to your question about Cuba, a long answer to a short question. The Cubans introduce many of these resolutions, and so they play an outsized role at the UN, and countries don't want to take them on. In addition, the second part is that within their region, you have a, a, a very uh, disturbing mechanism, a, a, a dynamic, where um, the Latin American ambassadors, even if in the region Venezuela was being expelled or suspended from Mercosur, the regional economic group, at in Geneva... They all belong to the same group, the Grulac, which is the uh, it's Latin American countries. Uh, what's that again? It, it's Grulac. I forget exactly what it stands for. Almost sounds like Gulag. It's, it's yeah, yeah. It's, it would close. be it would be the group, the group of uh, Latin, Latin American countries. countries. I forget what the what the U is, <laughs> but it's it's the group of Latin American countries, and they they like to have coffee together and agree on the on the rotations of who's going to have the next positions and they don't want to be confrontational and that's the norm at the human rights council is not to be confrontational so there's a combination of reasons that's cuba there is the ideology that that there are those who don't want to take them on so a variety of reasons but we know that there is one country that doesn't get you know spoken to or you know gets uh you know having coffee with and that appears to be israel now, I'm not, I don't have great affinity towards Israel. I think it's the only democracy in the Middle East. I think as a model, it works perfectly well. Uh, they probably do abuse human rights in some circumstances, like most governments around the world. But what is the, what is the proportion of resolutions against them? It's, it's something extremely high and disproportionate. Yes. Uh, you know, there are many UN bodies where Israel is singled out for obsessive and disproportionate treatment. That is, it's a campaign going back now almost five decades, uh, led by the Arab and Islamic states, led by the Palestinians, to uh, demonize Israel as as the arch human rights violator in resolutions that make no mention of Hamas, make no mention of Fatah, make no mention of Hezbollah, and that are often surreal. And I would say do so in a way that that is... Um, uh, bizarre, both on the numbers and on 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 the on the on the the language. You mentioned the numbers in Geneva at the Human Rights Council. In the upcoming session, there's going to be one resolution on Iran. There's going to be one on North Korea, and there's going to be five on Israel. At least five on Israel. There's one report on Syria. There's two reports on Iran. There's seven reports on Israel. There's one agenda item in the next month where we'll discuss all situations around the world. It's called Agenda Item Four. You can address specific country situations. Not themes, but you can address countries. You can talk about North Korea, you can talk about Iran. That'll be one day, Agenda Item 4. And then a few days later on Monday, uh, the 19th of March, if I'm not mistaken, will be Agenda Item 7, which is human rights violations by Israel. And no other country in the world has its own Agenda Item. I was about to say, Israel has its own Agenda Item. Only country in the world. Not Syria, where there's a genocide happening. Not North Korea, where they have basically concentration camps. Not, uh, not Sudan. Not Yemen. Only Israel has its own agenda item. And there was an effort this year to try to uh, merge the agenda items, and the Arab states are refusing. They're saying, no, this effort is political. So it's really an Orwellian. If you want to speak about Orwellian language, uh, the Human Rights Council is the epitome of it. But I, I want to emphasize, it's not just the number or the fact that there's one agenda item. It's also the language. When the resolutions are adopted, for example, on Sudan, from time to time there's a resolution on Sudan, the UN norm is if you do adopt a resolution, which is already the exception, because the exception is to have coffee with the Venezuelans and the Cubans and not to do a resolution. But in the handful, let's say 15 or 20 countries where there is some kind of a resolution, the norm is to, even if you, if, even if it's critical, is to include a lot of diplomatic language where you acknowledge whatever positive you can say. Three positive things, five positive things. So even on the resolution on Sudan, whose leader is wanted for genocide by the International Criminal Court, and you know that here in South Africa because the government failed to implement that arrest warrant when, when he was here and allowed him chose, to fly away. Chose, not failed. Pardon? The chose. Chose. Mm. Chose, yeah, yeah. And, and I understand it was criticized later by a judge, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, they're basically our government is in, in contempt of their own courts. Their own courts, yeah. So, um, so even the resolutions on Sudan will say we commend the government for signing this or that agreement. We, acknowledge, we, we appreciate the fact that they welcome this or that rapporteur, uh, this, this, this or that UN investigator. But only when it comes to Israel, uh, even if Israel has admitted numerous UN investigators to visit, 
And in other international agencies, such as the Quartet, might acknowledge the fact that tons of uh, humanitarian aid are flowing through Israel into the passings, uh, the crossings into Gaza, and all kinds of positive things that Israel might do are never mentioned at all. They are the, the the resolutions are devoid of any positive language whatsoever, and I think it's not accidental because if your purpose is to demonize something or someone, something that is evil like Hitler, nothing good could be said of them. And so if the purpose is to demonize Israel, which it is, then that is why they they the language is uniquely. Uh, negative and demonizing. It has, includes nothing positive whatsoever. Okay. I, I, I need to throw this in here because we have taken criticism for being too nice to Israel. So what of people who say, well, you know, Israel must be the most guilty of, 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 of these human rights abuses. They deserve what they get. Um, obviously, the Palestinians are going to go there and make resolutions. And I do think that that is a reasonable thing. You would expect the Palestinians to push their agenda, even if you disagree with their agenda. Um, uh, people will cite things like uh, the settlements issue. They'll cite uh, in each of the intifadas, there have been multiple civilian casualties. The last one specifically, the casualties were greater on the Palestinian side than the Israeli side. That uh, There are reasons for that. But what of the people who say, well, um, Israel's getting what it deserves? Yeah, I think I, I, I would say two things to that. The first thing is that uh, n- no... No country in, in, in modern times has faced the kind of threats that Israel has faced. Uh, we see in France when they had the Bataclan terrorist attacks, uh, it was a year and a half ago, when, uh, you know, more than 100 people were killed in, in, in a, in a club and, and elsewhere in, in Paris. And immediately the French, you know, reacted very strongly and arrested hundreds of people within days. And you see in London and in Brussels, the terrorist attacks, and you see that countries react quite robustly to try to protect their citizens and they arrest people and so forth. And uh, you see governments that are very quick to condemn Israel, um, uh, condemn Israel when it faces much greater threats, when they face comparable or, or much lesser threats, they uh, adopt the same or even or even worse actions. So I think there there is, uh, by, by many, there is a failure to appreciate the fact that Israel's neighbors include groups like Hamas, which in their charter openly call for the destruction of Israel and in their sermons uh, spew the most anti-Semitic um, statements against Jews, not just about Israel, but against Jews. That's one neighbor uh, to the west in Gaza. And then to the north, it's Hezbollah, which is a Shiite group, but also a terrorist group. It's been aiding and abetting the Syrian genocide. And there, too, they call for the destruction of Israel, even as Israel there. Initially, they said their beef with Israel was at their uh, occupying Lebanon. Israel completely pulled out of Lebanon in the year 2000, certified by the United Nations that it had completely withdrawn. And, and Hezbollah then came up with other reasons, because they, they want the destruction of Israel, and they threaten that they want to invade Israel. Um, their other neighbors are, you know, if you go to the northeast, it's ISIS, which, you know, uh, burns people alive and burns Christians and uh, takes women and makes them into sex slaves. We just had one this week, Farida Abbas Khalaf, a Yazidi girl who was 16 or 17, and her family was killed and she was taken as a sex slave, and she's an amazing woman. She survived and wrote a book and is fighting, trying to fight back in, in, in her own way. Um, so that's Israel's neighbor to the northeast. There's Assad, who killed half a million of his own people. You can imagine what he would do to Israel, as they had tried to defeat Israel many times in the past. Uh, if you go straight to the east, you get Iraq, which is you know Jordan and Iraq, which has basically been taken over by Iran. So it's really a a mixture of failed states, ISIS terrorists, Hezbollah terrorists. And many of them have one thing in common is that they want to destroy Israel. These are the threats that Israel faces. No other country in the world faces these threats to its existence. And in its security measures, do they overstep their bounds and sometimes violate human rights? Yes. Should they be held accountable? Absolutely. Should soldiers who violate human rights in Gaza or the West Bank be held to account? Yes, they should. But is, are Israel's actions, um, compared to the, the security threats that they're facing, um, are uniquely uh, um, uh, v- violate violating of human rights? No, they're not. Now, uh, even if one thinks that Israel is a human rights violator, then the question comes to the uh, what you asked about the UN. 
is, you know, shouldn't the UN be condemning Israel? Well, maybe, you know, we can have a good argument. I can have a good argument with a, with a Palestinian advocate on how there should be a resolution on Israel or not, uh, because only a handful of countries get a resolution. But should Israel be the object of half the resolutions of the entire world? When you add together all of the resolutions on Iran and North Korea and Syria, and you still get more on Israel, because that's the answer to the question, there are more resolutions on Israel than on the rest of the world combined. If you look in the first 10 years of the Human Rights Council, there were 67 resolutions on all other countries and 68 on Israel. So 68 on Israel, 67 on the rest of the world combined. There is nothing that the UN, there's nothing in the UN um, way of doing things that justifies this treatment. And I would say, I just want to emphasize, for some people they'll say, well, we think Israel's an arch criminal and we have no sympathy and let them get whatever they get. Um, Israelis have human rights. And uh, if you adopt resolutions that effectively deny the human rights of Israelis, you're not really respecting uh, universal human rights. Can I also, while we're on the topic, there is a specific agency dedicated to the rights of Palestinians and 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 trying to promote um, Palestinian. Uh, well, I don't know what they try to do. It's, it's your, your, sorry, UNRWA. UNRWA, yeah. Um, so. W- can you tell us what that organization does? Because it's, it seems to be the UN should be a global body and now they've chosen to just represent this one issue with an entire body, sub-body. Yes. Actually, there, there are a number of special entities for the Palestinian cause that are actually effectively demonize Israel. In New, York, in New York at the United Nations, there are several committees. There's the Committee on the Inalienable Rights of the Palestinian People. There's the Special Division for Palestinian Rights, which is a... 16 member staff um where you have you have you have a, a comparable division in the in the political department of the UN in New York that has maybe 20 people for all of Africa and you might have a, a division of 15 just for the Palestinians so there's a number of entities and committees just for the Palestinians you referred to a very significant one which is the refugee agency only for the Palestinians or a relief agency just for the Palestinians across the street from my office in Geneva is the UN refugee agency known as the UN high commissioner for refugees and they deal with 60 million refugees around the world but the UN has another agency that deals only with Palestinian so-called refugees and I say so-called because if you look at actual refugees meaning those who fled or uh, left under whatever conditions um, what was then known as Palestine in, in 1947 or 1948 during the, during the, uh, the war of, of uh, May 1948. The, um, the, you, today there's about 30,000 who still are alive today from, from 1948. The rest are you know, descendants of refugees. They're not themselves refugees. You have 2 million of them. That UNRWA recognizes about five, five and a half million Palestinian refugees. These include two million Palestinians who live in Jordan who have citizenship. Right? This makes no sense at all. You have, you have individuals who were born in Jordan, who've been there maybe for three generations, who have citizenship. I mean, I'm born in Canada. My grandparents came three generations ago. They fled anti-Semitism from Poland. You know, I'm Canadian. My parents are Canadian. I, I'm not a, I don't call myself a Polish refugee. Um, and that's what, that's what they do. And this is absurd. You know, the refugee agency is supposed to help people who really are fleeing persecution from somewhere. And it's supposed to try to resolve the problem. UNRWA is the opposite. UNRWA was founded with the right principles. The, one of the founders was James McDonald, the U.S. ambassador to Israel, who was a great humanitarian. And he wanted to help Arabs who, who had fled from the war. Um, but over time, it became a tool, a political tool, using the Palestinians as pawns, not to resolve the problem, not to settle them, not to, you know, let it be understood that when Palestinians fled from the Galilee to Lebanon, they were going, you know, maybe 100 miles, maybe 50 miles, whatever the, the amount was, to their own kin, to their people sharing their own religion, speaking their own language. It would be like a Canadian fleeing to the United States, which could be, you know, absorbed very quickly, right? And the Palestinians fleeing into Lebanon or into Syria could have been absorbed you know, very easily, but they refused to do so. They wanted to keep them as a, as an open wound. Like when you see a beggar who has an open wound, sometimes they did the wound themselves to to get yeah. sympathy and get money. And and the Palestinians are being manipulated. It's it's disgusting. They're, they've been manipulated by the Arab regimes for decades as a, to sustain a grievance against Israel. Many of the numbers today are false. Lebanon had a census of the Palestinian quote unquote refugees in Lebanon. The official numbers of of UNRWA 
are about 450,000. The actual numbers, according to the census of Lebanon, a country that is dominated by Hezbollah, the numbers are 170,000. So they, they've, they've inflated the numbers by about 300,000. And UNRWA said, well, you know, we include people. They may have left, but if they didn't tell us, so we include them too. It means basically all their numbers are false. Um, and I'll just, you know, end with just a, with one comment on UNRWA. The problem with UNRWA is, is their narrative. The, the, if you go to an UNRWA school, they teach you, um, that they teach Palestinians, if you're in Gaza or Lebanon, that your home isn't here, your home isn't here in Gaza, your home is there in Israel, your home is in Tel Aviv and Haifa, where your family fled from three generations ago. And so let us not be surprised that when the international community sends cement into Gaza, when the Palestinians receive the cement designed to build homes, hospitals, and schools, that instead of building those homes, hospitals, and schools, they take that same cement and they build terror tunnels to go into Israel and to attack and to kidnap people. Um, we shouldn't be surprised because they were told that those those homes are, are over there. If you mentioned the word Yarmouk City to UNRWA, do you think there would be uh, just a hint of recognition? Of what? If you say Yamuk City, Yamuk City is a city in Syria that has been ethnically cleansed of Palestinians by about 80% since the start of the Syrian war. Um, and, and no one appears to know about these Palestinians in Syria being persecuted and oppressed. Uh, it's always, it appears if, personally, if Israel's not to blame, yeah, no one really cares. That is a fact. The fact is that when people say, you know, at the UN, all you hear about is Palestinians and there's a special day on Palestinians and a special committee and special sessions. It's all Palestinians. And the question is, do they really care about Palestinians? And just like you said, there have been uh, about maybe 3,000 Palestinians who've been killed in Syria and the others ethnically cleansed had to flee to Lebanon. Um, and the Assad regime has killed thousands of Palestinians or uh, and others. And you don't hear a word of it. It's not a single resolution on it. And the same is true in Kuwait when they expelled 300,000 Palestinians or when Lebanon denies the right to work to hundreds of thousands of Palestinians. You don't hear about it. If Israel is not to blame, you just don't hear about it. So UN Watch itself has been accused. Is it true that you've funded by predominantly Israeli interests? Define Israeli interest. The answer, uh, uh, answer is no. Our detractors would like to say that we're a, a puppet of Israel and funded by Israel. We uh, do not receive a dime from the state of Israel. We are, we're funded entirely by private donors. There may be a handful in Israel, but most of them are not. Most of them are in other countries. But most of them are, are Jewish, as far as I'm aware. We don't ask the donors what, right. their, what their religion is, and actually nobody really knows um, because – People don't know who our donors are. Because you have been accused of being a, like a pro-Israeli monitor at the UN. So do you, if we assume that the UN is uh, unbalanced and unfair towards Israel, do you think, how can I explain myself? So do you think Israel is a, a proper cause to fight for within the UN, if that makes sense? Yeah. Well, or, is it, or is it just to show hypocrisy? Just to show that the UN is not actually doing the job properly, which is the foundation of your of your NGO, of course. Yeah, uh, UN Watch was founded in 1993. We were uh, affiliated with the World Jewish Congress for seven years until the year 2000, and and in the in the year 2000 we were affiliated with the American Jewish Committee. So we were always affiliated with Jewish organizations up until about five six years ago when we became independent. So we're no longer affiliated with the Jewish organization, but we were founded with the purpose of fighting against anti-Semitism and fighting against the uh, unequal treatment of Israel. So th these are these are part of our. Uh, raison d'etre, and we're also f founded to combat the uh, violation of universal human rights by UN bodies that failed to to uh, complete their mission. So our founder was was uh, Morris Abram, who was a great civil rights leader, and he said that when he uh, was a lawyer for Martin Luther King uh, in the 1950s and the 1960s, and when he brought the Supreme Court case of Gray versus Saunders, which upheld the right of African Americans to have their vote counted, just like any other uh, American. Uh, he was fighting against inequality, and you know, on his tombstone in the United States, the epitaph reads, "He fought for the principle of uh, one man, one vote in American constitutional law." So that was his life's work, and he was also a proud Jew, and he fought against anti-Semitism. And when he came to the United Nations as the United States ambassador to the Human Rights Commission in the late '80s and early '90s, he saw this obsessive 
uh, treatment of Israel, which effectively denies the human rights of Israelis and says that they don't have a right to life. Because if every action that Israel takes to fight against Hamas rockets and stabbings and terrorist attacks is a human rights violation, you're saying Israelis don't have human rights. And that's effectively what the Human Rights Council says. And he he founded UN Watch to uh, promote the universal human rights that he always fought for and also to fight against anti-Semitism and the denial of human rights of Israelis. And and that's what we do. And so as someone asked me in Geneva, I said, oh, do you have a bias? I said, yeah, to the same extent that Morris Abram had a bias when he was creating organizations to fight against the persecution of blacks. You know, So if, if groups that are fighting against bias are themselves biased, you could say that. But you know, the, the positions that, that we take in fighting against the, the um, obsession with Israel, which in the end casts a shadow on the reputation of the UN as a whole, it harms the UN's own credibility, it takes away from the UN's own time to deal with other issues. It's a self-destructive policy, but um, the um, uh, well, I lost my train of thought. No, <laughs> that's fine. I think you've you've um, satisfactorily answered the question. Let's uh, move a little bit on and discuss some changes in the UN because uh, there's a question about how you guys get your funding. The UN, uh, there have been some talks about how they get their funding. Obviously, all the member bodies pay somewhat, uh, but one country seems to pay more than everyone else. That would be the United States. Uh, their, their headquarters are obviously in New York, and uh, I've always found it quite funny, the story about all the parking tickets for the diplomats uh, being in the in the tens of millions of US dollars. And, of course, uh, you, you know, people like uh, the the heads of state of places like Iran are more than welcome to come there under diplomatic immunity to to make speeches at the you know general assembly every year so the un the us has started to change its view towards the un that's mainly been under the trump administration uh, it's the first time the us seems to be making some criticism some really staunch criticism of of the un they have previously been, I think, a bit of a thorn in the side of the certainly the UN Security Council because they're often, you know, they do tend to stand up on the right side of things until last year, uh, where they where they they they, they seem to vo- make a, an incorrect vote. But we can talk more about that. So, in terms of Nikki Haley and and her impact at the United Nations. Um, what 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 can you say of that in terms of what your organization is seeing? I, I I don't think she's changed the United Nations because it's not in the power of any one country to change the United Nations. But she she has brought a certain vigor to to holding the UN to account for some of its um, more absurd distortions and abuses. And I think that's been important. I think I think she's she's brought a certain energy. Um, and she ha- she has been able to achieve some things, you know, concrete things. When she came into power, there was a ridiculous report by an Arab agency at the UN. It's, it was a commission of 18 Arab states based in Beirut, which uh, pulled out a, a, a bizarre character named Richard Falk, who's a, prof- a radical professor in America who supports the 9-11 conspiracy theory. He says, we don't really know who did the 9-11 attacks. You know, he's he's endorsed books that suggest that it was an inside job by America. Um, throughout his life, he's supported, ter- you know, various anti-Western terrorists. And, um, so he, he's been condemned by many countries, including Canada. He was condemned by the UK three times for anti-Semitism. And he was a UN official for six years. He was the expert on Palestine. Okay. Um, and, uh, until he, he got condemned by Ban Ki-moon for supporting 9-11 conspiracy theories. So he was in retirement. He's in his late eighties. He may be almost 90 years old. And this commission in Beirut of Arab countries pulled him out and said, would you write us a report saying that Israel's an apartheid state? And he said, well, I'd be glad to. So he wrote a report that Israel's an apartheid state. Um, by the way, he's someone who, when he was the UN Palestine expert, put in by Fatah, by the PLO, according to WikiLeaks, the PLO met the American ambassador in Geneva, the deputy ambassador, and said, you know, I know that we appointed Richard Falk, but we don't know what to do with him. He's supporting Hamas, and that's our enemy, and he wants to give Hamas standing at the UN. So we need, we need, to, we need to get rid of him. Can you help us? And the American <laughs> says, well, it's not nice to fire you on experts who can't help you. So this is Richard Falk, right? So they pull him out of retirement. They make him write this report. They ask him to. He does it with pleasure. And then Nikki Haley comes in and she sees this report comes out and she says to Guterres, the new secretary general, Antonio Guterres, she says, you know, what is this nonsense? And Guterres says, no, no, I'm going to distance myself from this report. I'm not 
connected to it. It's done by this agency in Beirut. She said, no, no, it's not enough. And the next day, the website was, the, the report was deleted off the website. So that never happened before. So thanks to Nikki Haley, that report was deleted. Um, and then, you know, a few weeks later, I was at the Human Rights Council and all the Arab states were holding the report in their hands. And they're like, Israel's an apartheid state and Israel's apartheid. And, and it, we heard from Algeria and Syria and Iraq. And then I had two minutes to respond. And I said, um, I said, Mr. President, I said, you know, uh, you know, Israel has problems and they should be criticized and Arabs have issues and Israel, you know, needs to improve its treatment of Arab citizens. But there are two million Arab citizens in Israel. They, they, they have, they have employment as doctors, lawyers and other professions. I've been treated by an Arab doctor in, in Israel. Um, and, uh, and there's Arab judges. There's, you know, maybe a tenth of the Knesset, if not more, are Arab members of Knesset. Um, there's Arabs on the Supreme Court. So the, the apartheid, uh, uh, accusation is ridiculous. I said, but if you, if, but uh, it's interesting who's making the accusation. I said, uh, I said, you know, the Middle East used to be full of Jews. You know, uh, Egypt used to have 120,000 Jews. Um, uh, Algeria used to have 130,000 Jews. Algeria, where are your Jews? There's no Jews in Algeria. I said, Egypt used to have 120,000 Jews. Where are your Jews? Silence. Syria used to have, I don't know, 150,000 Jews for thousands of years. Where are your Jews? Silence. You know, and I went around the room. And, and these are the countries that were full of Jews. The Jews were there before Islam. Islam's only from the 7th century. Jews have been in Persia for 2,500 years, and they've been in Iraq for 3,000 years. You know, the exile to Babylonia, recorded in the Bible. Um, so so these are, we're talking about racist countries that in one form or other basically expelled their Jews and, and conducted pogroms and, and you know, pro-fascist pogroms in the 1940s in Iraq and hanged Jews in the public square in 1948. And they all fled. Many of them were taken in by Israel. Um, so you have, this is the worst hypocrisy. Is there, is there a point of no return for the UN? Where, for Israel perhaps, even for you, where it's just beyond saving and you must just let it crash on its own course. So no, to speak. I mean, you know, the UN is not going away. And that's why our founder actually would testify in Congress that yeah, you need the UN. The UN's not going away. It reflects the world that we have and and we have to make it better. And and my beef is with dictatorships, my beef really is with democracies. Are are we we in the West uh, and South Africa is a democracy. It's it's a liberal democracy. It doesn't often vote as such. That's a problem is that when it sits on the committee on NGOs, it sometimes votes against NGOs that are human rights NGOs. It v- often votes with the dictators, not always. Yeah. Um, and so there is still a country of freedom of speech. We're sitting here. We're saying whatever we want here in Johannesburg. And that's great. So I, I think one of the things that we need to do here in South Africa, and, and I'm happy to, to help that along, is is to have people uh, holding the government to account on how they vote in New York and in Geneva. Well, I mean, the problem is our Minister of Foreign Affairs uh, famously has a hole in her head. She was on BBC's Hard Talk. And um, due to the fact that she carried buckets as a child, she has a hole in her head. And that uh, therefore means she's a victim. And that if you criticize her, you're racist. True story. I <laughs> no, promise. It, go it, look. It is. Go look on the clip on YouTube. But but perhaps that. I'll alludes, have to take a look. Yeah, you will. Uh, perhaps that alludes to a bigger point, which is leadership. I mean, you've said it's a problem of. It's not really the states we expect to act in an right. illiberal that's fashion. Right. That's right. We we cannot expect people who aren't liberal to be liberal. Right. Um, but the only way we can get those people to come around to, which is what we'd like to do. Uh, you know, uh, this is a classically liberal podcast. Uh, we, we talk about these types of things. One of the reasons is because we want people to start thinking about these ideas. And if they don't specifically have the ideas, we want them to question where they do stand and maybe they'll move a little bit to one side. Um, so is there a vacuum of leadership? Uh, and maybe this is more of a personal opinion than your organization, but is there a vacuum of leadership in, in the world? Is, is that where the problem lies? I, I suppose. Uh, I, I'm looking at individual countries. I'm not sure if we – yes, we, we do want leadership. Obviously, in the United States now, we have a, a very bizarre president uh, who doesn't exactly see himself as a leader of the free world. It doesn't seem to be an, an issue of great concern for him. At, at times, he can take positions that are better than Obama. Obama was weak on Iran. And uh, was weak on Cuba and somewhat weak on Venezuela. And um, and Trump, with all his bizarre statements and tweets and all that, may actually be stronger on that. We'll have to see. But certainly, he doesn't see himself as leader of the free world. And it's hard for the free world to see him as their leader, uh, given his positions on human rights and democracy and things like that. So so there is a leadership problem. Um, but I but I don't know if, if, if we need a leader necessarily. I, th- I think, you know, on the issues of concern... For us at the United Nations, 
Uh, nothing stops Germany, France, the UK from doing the right thing, from introducing resolutions, from not making deals. You know, we revealed a few years ago, based on a WikiLeaks document, uh, we, we found a WikiLeaks document where the, it was uh, Saudi cables had been dumped on the internet. And the Saudi ambassador in New York at the UN writes home to Riyadh and says, Dear Riyadh, I just had a visit today by the British ambassador. He'd like us to vote for them on the Human Rights Council. Well, that's okay if the Saudis or anybody else vote for the British. Sure, that's fine. But but he says, I propose that we do the usual thing. We do a deal and that we'll vote for them and they will vote for us. And uh, when we revealed it, it was a headline story in The Guardian and every other British paper. And, it, and the Foreign Office refused to deny that they did indeed consummate the deal. And every indication is that they did make the deal. Now, what am I supposed to do with the United Nations? Talk about giving up. But imagine I go there and I'm fighting to make this thing work. And I go there and I find out that the mother of constitutionalism Right, Britain made a deal to elect the Saudis, one of the worst countries in the world, on women's rights, on religious freedom, on freedom of speech. Talk about liberals. Raif Badawi, who wanted a free society, threw him 10 years in prison, a 1,000 lashes. He's gotten 50. The others are on pause. If Britain made a deal to vote the Saudis on the Human Rights Council, you know, what a kick in the stomach for us, you know, and obviously for, for Raif Badawi. But, and, and, and for me, that, that's the problem. And now the British can say, well, you know, when, when Jon Snow of Channel 4 had David Cameron in an interview, he asked him about that. He took our story and he said, what about this? And Cameron wouldn't answer. And finally, like that moment with Jack Nicholson in A Few Good Men, you want the truth? So finally he says, you want to know what? He says, well, the Saudis have given us information, stopped bombings, a plane over London, and they helped us. Okay, now, I understand there may be various reasons why you need to deal with the Saudis. It is a Western ally. Um, they're fighting against Iran. They have all that oil. Maybe they gave information to stop a bombing over London. I get that. That's realpolitik. We don't deny the existence of realpolitik. And that's maybe why you have to do certain deals with them. You don't need to elect them to be the human rights judge for the world. That they don't need to do. And and so we ask about leadership. Yeah, leadership is an issue. I wish that we had, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt or Churchill as our leader or other individuals that, that we can think of who could be leaders. But that shouldn't be an excuse for Britain, France or Germany to do yeah. the right thing. I, I just think that the, the reason for existence and the reason that many Western countries have the freedoms they do have been forgotten. And so you don't have representation of that on a world stage. And that's why I think leadership is important. Uh, we see it with uh, Donald Trump, who you say is a bizarre leader. You see it with uh, Justin Trudeau, who is, uh, in my opinion, a very weak leader. No, I think he's a great defender of people kind. <laughs> very good and very quick. Uh, so, he's my prime minister, you know. Yeah, well, um, absolutely. Yeah. Well, actually, uh, can you say uh, is I suppose that's not a it's not a it's a gender neutral term. What prime, prime minister? minister. Mm, well, yes. may, well, prime ministress, my prime, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. know. I think you might Unclear. be being misogynistic there. It could be. Um, it could be. I, uh, just quickly, let's let's discuss some of the other cases that you, you are focused on. You've mentioned Ralph Badawi. Um, there was Otto Wombler. I, I think you've had his parents at, now, your, now, at, your, yeah. at your conference. Yeah. Um, you know, there are terrible things being done to people the world over by really horrible states. What are some of the things we should know about that we might well, not have heard about. Well, yeah. I mean, we, we just had um, in, in Geneva, we had our 10th Geneva Summit for Human Rights and Democracy, where we brought victims of illiberal regimes um, to testify before the world. We brought them to the United Nations. We had at least 30 media outlets covered by CNN, Wall Street Journal, uh, French TV, you name it. Um, and I'll tell you some of the people that we had. We had Asli Erdogan, such an impressive uh, Turkish novelist. She's written many novels, been translated into multiple languages. Um, she's a, she was a physicist uh, and then became a novelist and just a, a treasure for Turkey. Okay, She shares the name of, of, of the dictator, but she has no, no relation to him. And uh, about a year and a half ago, she was uh, arrested for having done nothing at all. You know, story out of Kafka. Um, and arrested for having done nothing at all because her name was listed on the advisory board of a of a pro-Kurdish newspaper. The newspaper is legal. It's a legal newspaper. When she was in prison, she could actually even get the newspaper. Um, but they came to her. They 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 uh, um, ransacked her her house. Many of her writings were you know sort of ruined. Um, she was in prison for I think 133 days, including time in solitary confinement. And if you're the Turkish leader, this is like a national treasure, and they treated her like garbage. And they, they persecuted Yavuz Baydar, another Turkish journalist who's very courageous, spoke out, also articulate, you know, such impressive articulate people, and they're all just being chased out and persecuted. That we had from Turkey, from Venezuela, we had Antonio Ledesma, the mayor of Caracas, 
who, as I mentioned, just escaped a few months ago. Um, uh, we, we had an, a guest on the show, actually, about, uh, what, must be a month and a half ago, who's, who's still living in, in, in Venezuela and uh, just describes an absolutely horrific situation. It, it's so sad because it's a naturally wealthy country. They have l- larger oil reserves than any other place in the world. Uh, it's the failed policies of Chavez and Maduro have brought that country to starvation. People are scrounging for food. Babies are coming to the hospital starving, according to the New York Times. Uh, even as a, a, a scoundrel of a UN expert named Alfred de Zayas was the only UN expert allowed to visit Venezuela a few months ago uh, for very particular reasons. And he quickly was posting uh, on his website pictures of abundant food in Venezuela, you know, like Stalinist propaganda, uh, a, a despicable person if there ever was one. Um, and so uh, we brought them. We had from Russia the recipient of our Moral Courage Award was Vladimir Karamurza, who's an amazing Russian dissident. I don't think I mentioned him yet, but he, did I mention him? Yeah. Yeah, he was poisoned twice. Um, and we had from Africa, we had uh, three different people. We had from Uganda, we had uh, Kasha Jacqueline, who's an LGBT activist uh, in a, a country where she's targeted and demonized and a lot of hatred. I think Uganda's just south of Wakanda, actually, <laughs> technically. And um, so she she uh, is, is a very courageous person, and she spoke out. Um, we had from Zimbabwe, Pastor Evan Mawarire, who was the head of the This Flag Movement. Uh, very well-known individual. Yeah. So yes. no, known for you guys, but in Geneva, not very well-known. Um, actually, in Geneva, the opposite. In Geneva, a few months ago, the World Health Organization decided to make Mugabe their goodwill ambassador. Yeah. Yeah, and then we exposed that, and then after three days there was outrage, and and they took that away. And I said, Pastor Evan, you know, here in Geneva they think Mugabe was their goodwill ambassador, and we're happy to see you here instead. And finally, we also had um, Julien Lusenge, who's a, a heroic individual from uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, the DRC, who fights against rape used as a weapon of war. She leads a coalition of forty women's women's rights groups, and she said, "Why is the DRC just elected to the Human Rights Council, which they are taking their seat on Monday?" Um, she said they don't belong on the Human Rights Council, and and she she and other human rights activists in their country oppose them. I mean, what you describe is just something that is so so utterly corrupted by I don't know by what by by fine ads by ideology. It's low trading. It, it must be. And last question from you: Must be really tough trying to get a graph of what on earth the UN is doing half the time. Yeah, it's 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 often, as I said, uh, Orwellian, absurd, Kafkaesque, but it's not going away. Their decisions are taken as important. Uh, we, we or before the show we spoke about some polls. The polls that I'd seen by the Pew Global Opinion Survey uh, tended to show that 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 the the percentage of population in major Western democracies that do regard the UN as credible and authoritative is anywhere from fifty to seventy percent. Those are the polls that we had seen. Now I don't know exactly what the how the question was formed. To look at that again, but those those are the poll numbers. Certainly in Europe, you say the UN Human Rights Council said that's like said you know to a secular audience today, it's like saying that's and the Lord spoke to Moses you know at Sinai, it's like the Word of God, it's gospel. In Canada, if you flip over a ten dollar bill, it used to be I think it still is a UN peacekeeper. So many countries, you know, outside the US and a few other countries, the UN is regarded as very credible. So it's not going away, and uh, and we can we need to retake. The UN Charter is a, is a liberal document. It's a great document of the liberal internationalism of the anti-Hitler alliance. So, and, you know, people like Morris Abram, Eleanor Roosevelt, René Cassin, uh, these, you know, uh, iconic human rights figures of the post-war era, uh, ha- they had it right. And the, their, their, their mechanism, their language have been corrupted and we need to retake it. I can only wish you the greatest success. Thank you. Mr. Neuer, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. What a pleasure. Thank you, Hillel. Uh, an absolute pleasure. We'll have you back anytime. Thank you. And good luck with all your work. Thank you. If you're a first-time listener to the show, you can always find us on Twitter at Renegade underscore reports. Uh, we are weekly on all of your favorite podcast apps, also on Facebook. And Ramon can be found at Roman Kabernack, myself at Jonathan underscore Witt. Thank you for listening. You can donate on Patreon. We'll catch you next time. Cheers. This is cliffcentral.com.